And now that you're all seated, please take out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 126. Psalm 126, if you would please. Last Friday night, I was asked by one of the brothers here in the congregation, he said, well, now that you've been here for six months, what do you think? Not sure what he was expecting, but I told him the same thing that I would have told him after six weeks, same thing that I believe I'd probably tell him after six years. There's still mornings when Karen and I wake up and just look around and say that we can't believe we're in Shoto. The love and the family and the warmth and those seeking God and those wanting to serve God and just everything that goes on here to be a part of this group is truly the way church ought to be and we are so blessed and so grateful to be here. There are many reasons I could go on way past fellowship dinner uh, just listing those things that we, are, that we are grateful for and talking about them but amongst many of the things that I'm grateful for in being here is the way that this whole idea of Save One Soul in 2019 has received so much support. I've heard devotionals, sermons, phone conversations, conversations out here in the lobby, uh, all kinds of things. And, and I realize, I understand that thus far that we have not uh, all saved one soul this year, and, and I get that. But the fact is, is that people are really having that in the forefront of their thoughts and their minds, and that is indeed what the church is all about and what we were saved to do, but it's just wonderful watching folks get excited about that and, and keep that in the forefront of their minds. Proverbs 11.30, and you can stay there in, in Psalms 126, but Proverbs 11.30 begins by saying this, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. The term tree of life is found three times in Genesis where the tree of life is removed from man. The phrase tree of life is found three more times in the book of Revelation where it's restored to man. And it's found its other four times in Proverbs, one of which is right here in Proverbs 11.30, the fullness of which says this, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who saves souls is wise. Even in the Old Testament, we see this idea of saving souls expressed as wise. And I appreciate so much those of you who have stepped out on faith, those of you despite your busy schedules and your necessary duties as well as some of your personal doubts, <laughs> maybe fears because that's not something that you've done a lot of, continuing to do that. Also, I want to take a, a brief moment and express my personal gratitude. If, if you've not worshipped elsewhere regularly, one of the things that is great about being here at Shoto is out here in the lobby, there are so many Bible study materials between the tracks and the CDs. The new house the houses are in, by the way. There's a stack of those out here. There's a lot of great stuff to study with people and to grow ourselves. So having said all of that, the reason I had you turn to Psalm 126 is because part of supporting and encouraging this current evangelistic growth process 
Not only did I put a very challenging article in the bulletin this morning, but today's sermon is going to focus on Psalm 126, and it is to that same end. Brother Dan Jenkins, some of you that go to Affirming the Faith may have heard Brother Jenkins speak, speak there. He writes articles for Church of Christ articles. He's been in a lot of different places, but he recently wrote an article entitled, The Psalm of the Soul Winner. The Psalm of the Soul Winner, and it is taken from Psalm 126. Didn't know that soul winners had their own psalm, did you? Brother Jenkins writes, The book of Psalms expresses the deep emotions that servants of God have. There is something about poetry and singing which touches the souls of his people. Each of the Psalms is different and has a special place in the various stages of our lives as we serve our Creator. Psalm 126 gives us great insight into the emotions each of us has as we seek to lead others to the Lord. Psalm 126 is truly the psalm of the soul winner. If you're open to that passage, your Bible might have right at the top of it the phraseology, a song of ascents. A song of ascents. And what that means is, is that God's people in the Old Testament, as they were ascending up to Jerusalem for worship, because Jerusalem was, was high above sea level, and as they were ascending up to Jerusalem, they would often sing. They would sing songs. I remember a time when we were going to this little congregation up in Bangor, Maine, and a lot of times we would sing on the way. It was a three-hour ride, by the way. We only went once a month, but they needed some fill-in preachers. So, yeah, we had three kids in the back of a pickup by 7 o'clock in the morning. Showers all taken and everything. Don't think that was an adventure. But anyway, um, we would sing when they weren't sleeping. Uh, we would sing sometimes going to church other places. And that's the idea of a song of ascents, singing as a family on the way to worship. Being a soul winner, Brother Jenkins writes, begins with an abiding sense of how lost we were before we became child of God. Do we sometimes lose sight of that as Christians? Do we sometimes maybe take for granted what we have? Being a soul winner begins with an abiding sense of how lost we were before we became a child of God. The imagery of this psalm is of the return of the Jews from captivity. Every soul winner, while not in physical captivity, was held captive to Satan. We weren't in physical captivity, but we were all slaves of sin, right? Romans 6. And so we were held captive to Satan. Jesus tells us that in Luke 4.18 as well as other places. In Psalm 126, the psalmist said, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Now we need to understand the, the, the verbiage here. It doesn't mean when the Lord put them back into captivity. That's not what that means. When the Lord brought back those who had been captives, those of the captivity, that's what that means. When the Lord brought back that group that had been in captivity, when the Lord brought them back, the psalmist says, we were like those in a dream. Have you ever felt, right after your conversion, you just couldn't believe it was true, you were so grateful to be saved? 
You finally knew, you finally had that assurance, you'd finally done what the Lord had asked you to do, and you knew you were saved. And it was like, all my sins are gone, or all my sins truly gone. I mean, some of us over the years have trouble even believing that, and, and we know it, but connecting our head to our heart doesn't seem to, to work. Doesn't it feel like a dream to know your sins are forgiven and that you have a home in heaven? Just this, this incredible, unbelievable knowledge that we have. Well, these folks that were brought back from physical captivity were like those who dream. Brother James Kaufman said this must indeed have been an understatement. After two or three generations, that is some 70 years of captivity in Babylon, they are suddenly on their way back to Jerusalem just like God had promised. Not only are they on their way back home, but the all-powerful Medo-Persian monarch Cyrus is financing their return. Not only is God letting them return, but they got a pagan king who's doing everything in his power to help them out. He's financing the trip. Sponsoring and encouraging this trip back in every way possible. No wonder they laughed and sang for joy. Never before in the history of the human race has there ever been anything like this, and we might add there's never been anything like it since then. Surely the hand of Almighty God is seen in these events. God told his people he'd bring them back from captivity before they ever went into captivity. And God keeps his word, and God had kept his word, and they were euphoric about it. It was as though the Jews had been in the wilderness south of Canaan, which often flourished when there were streams of water. If we look down in Psalm 126, verse 4, it says, Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. And again, it's not bring back our being slaves, but bring back those who have been captive. That's what that means. Bring back those taken captive or of the captivity. Every child of God was once a child of Satan. And we've been brought back from captivity. Being an effective soul winner. If you really want to be effective at this, being an effective soul winner always begins by never forgetting where you came from by never losing sight of the fact that we were all once without God, without hope, that we were sinners, that we were cut off from God. We must never lose sight of where we came from or what we came out of. Most of you, I'm sure, have seen the old Rocky Balboa series as many times as they've played it. <laughs> but do you remember one of those movies, Rocky's Champion, He's got everything. He's got the house, the cars, the money. He's got it all. And he loses his title. He lost his title because he forgot where he came from. He stopped working hard. He forgot where he'd come from. And so then he goes back into the old gym in the old part of town where before he had any money, before he knew all these people, before his name was known by all these people, he goes back and remembers where he came from. You remember that? Remember that one? He gets his title back. But he had to go back to the old neighborhood. Folks, you want to be an effective soul winner, you need to remember where you came from. You need to remember that you were just as lost as those out there that we're now surrounded by who are still lost. Never lose sight of that. Do you know that's what empowered the Apostle Paul? 
couple of passages that we'll look at. Go with me in your Bibles. Keep your finger here, but go to 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul never forgot. Did Paul do any evangelistic work? A little bit, right? But part of what empowered him was never forgetting how lost he was before Jesus revealed to him who he was. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul would write to the Church of Christ in first century Corinth, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the Church of God. Paul is looking back and he's saying, I remember who I was, how lost I was, what I did, I remember where I came from. And I remember how I was saved. Look at the next verse. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. What did Paul say? I remember. I know what I did. I know what I'm guilty of. I've never forgotten that. But God in his grace saved my soul. And he said that pushed me to work harder than everybody else because I remember where I came from. Not I, but the grace of God within me. You may recall as well his words from 1 Timothy. Turn over there to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. When we forget how lost we were, we become ineffective on reaching out to those who are just as lost as we were. 1 Timothy 1.12, Paul writes to young Timothy, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul says, oh, I've always been such a great guy. No, that's not what he said. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It's a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. How come Paul was so effective telling others about the grace of God? How come Paul was so effective when it came to reaching out to the lost? One reason. Because Paul never forgot what the grace of God did for him and who he was prior to that time and how lost and hopeless that he was. That's why. You see, God was willing to do whatever it took to save you and I. Whatever it took. Just as we must be willing to do whatever it takes to save those who are still as lost as we used to be. Look in with me in Ephesians 2. Look what God was willing to do. Look where we were. Look where we came from. Ephesians chapter 2. But God did what it took. Ephesians 2, 1. And you he made alive who were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You see what he did right there in writing that? Look at the two tenses. 
You he made alive who were dead. You used to be. You no longer are. But yet, there are still those who are because of the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. What's he telling them? He said, you used to be there. And guess what? There's some that still are. Among whom also, verse 3, we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a blessing to be saved by grace. But notice what he does next. He takes them right back again to where they came from. He says, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time, you, you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He said, that's where you came from. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God, who was rich in mercy, said, I can't have this. I'm going after those folks. And I'm going to send my son to die for them. That's the kind of attitude that we must have remembering where we came from for the lost. Secondly, in Psalm 126, if you'll go back there with me, Secondly, second verse from Psalm 126, Brother Jenkins says, being a soul winner results in a change of attitude toward worshiping God. The Psalm continues with these words, verse two, that our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. We've been freed from the bondage of sin and that should turn our grief into joy, into singing. Peter said, you're filled with joy inexpressible concerning this salvation. Even though you haven't seen Christ, you're filled with this, this inexpressible joy. Great soul winners never forget what God has done for them and for those they have taught. For those that we teach and lead to Christ, we share this joy and, and we have this abiding sense of, of how wonderful it is for them too. Listen to what Paul wrote in Philippians 1, 3 through 11. He said, I thank my God upon my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Paul says, oh, I'm just so joyful to pray for you because you got so much. I got so much, and now you got so much, and this is just an awesome thing. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Paul never forgot what God had done for him and how great it was to share those blessings with those 
that responded to the gospel because now they had the same thing he had. And Paul was just said, that just fills me with joy. Thirdly, being a soul winner is known by those people who are around them. The glorious return of the Jews from captivity resulted in the nations around them saying, look at verse 2, the second part, the Lord has done great things for them. Even the pagans around them realized that God had done great things for them. Let me ask you a question. Do those people that don't know God, whom you're around every day at work or school, can they look at you and say, wow, I know God's done great things for that person. Because that person is full of joy and hope and expectation. They live a different life. They're happy because of what they have in Christ. They're so grateful that their sins are forgiven. Can the people around us look at us? Do they look at us and say, wow. Wow, God's done awesome things in that person's life. Well, they ain't going to do that if we walk around sewing all day long, forgetting what we got in Christ. Is that what they see when they look at us? That's what they saw here. There was physical evidence. The light of the redeemed shines brightly in the darkness of the world around them. God has changed their lives. And the redeemed also say, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Notice, notice that the people around them not only know it, the Lord has done great things for them, but these people themselves know it because they're glad. They're glad people. If the people around you in your world should have a chance to describe you and they were told, you're given three words to describe that person, would one of them be glad? Would one of them be joyful? That doesn't mean we don't have an off day now and then. I'm talking about overall. Nobody's got it all together all the time. But would people look at you and say, that is a really joyful person. That is a glad person. Wow, God has done great things for them. Is that what we're showing people? Because that's what happened here. I don't want to hear any voices. I just want you to raise your hands. Are you glad this morning? Are you really glad? Were you glad yesterday morning? Will you be glad tomorrow morning when it's not the Lord's day, you're not gathered with the church, and you go back into the world surrounded by people that don't know God? Will you be glad then? Will the world around you see your unmistakable gladness at knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and that knowing that your sins are covered forever beneath the blood of Jesus and will they see your gladness that you are now in Christ where there is now therefore no condemnation, Romans 8 verse 1. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Very simple. There is now. Therefore, right now, this morning, at 22 minutes to 12, this morning, there is right now no condemnation, not the least little bit for those who are in Christ. Your record, if you're in Christ, you're living for God, your record is just as clean and white as it can be in heaven. Isn't that an awesome thing? Right now, right now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Man, that should make us glad. Let me share with you seven Psalms, six. You can write them down, I'm not gonna to turn to them. Listen, listen to what the Bible says in just the book of Psalms, just a few selected readings about those knowing the Lord and being glad. 
Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let the world around you know what you got. What do we do with the lamp? Do we hide it? No, we don't hide it under a bushel. Psalm 40 and verse 16, let all those who seek God rejoice and be glad in him. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Let such as love your salvation say it continually. That's not just on Sunday. That's not just when we're singing. That's not just Wednesday night at Bible class. Let those who love their salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. You know what the Lord be magnified means? <laughs> Little boy was asked in Sunday school class to define what it meant for the Lord to be magnified in somebody's life. He said, it means make him bigger. What happens when you put something under a magnifying glass, right? It gets bigger. We need to let people know what an awesome God we have and how glad we are by magnifying him continually. Psalm 40 in verse 16. Psalm 64 in verse 10. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. Psalm 68, 3, let the righteous be glad, let them rejoice before God, let them rejoice exceedingly. I am so excited about going to heaven. Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. David said in Psalm 122 in verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. David said it made me happy when they said, hey, it's time for worship. I was so glad when they said, let us go worship. You see, verse 3 of Psalm 126, when we continually focus on the great things God has done for us, we cannot help but be glad. We are to be so glad that we are to live a different life, a joyful life, a life filled with the joy that God has given us, walking in the light constantly trying to serve and shine and spread the light of God in the darkness around us, Ephesians 4 and 5. There is so much bad news in this world. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens. Watch the news. Not too much, it'll drag you down. People are looking to be happy. People want to be glad. People want to be joyous. And, and they seek it in, in gambling and alcohol and, and immoral behavior of all kinds. And, and they're seeking to be happy. Brethren, we have what will make people happy. We have that that will fulfill people. It's what everybody is looking for, so we just need to exhibit it. Listen, that's one of the reasons Karen and I became Christians. We had some next door neighbors and they invited us to church, and we didn't know anything about the Lord's church. But what got us to go, one of the elements that really pushed us to go was we watched their lives and what they had in their home. And we saw something different than we'd seen in the world around us. There was this something different, something special. There was a peace. With God, there was this, this ability. It, just, it was different. It, they were living like Christians, okay? Let me just leave it at that. And we saw it, and that was attractive. That'll get your attention. Folks, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. 
People are gonna see that. Even if they don't agree with what we have to say, they're still going to see it. Fourthly, being a soul winner creates an optimistic expectation that others will be one. Let me say that again. Being a soul winner, number four, creates an optimistic expectation that others will be one. Look at verse five. What does it say? Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Do you see that? Now, when the Bible uses the word shall, does that mean it's in question? It means it's sure. What does it say? Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Brother Jenkins said, as you read this verse, take special note of the tears shed by those who are sowing the seed of the kingdom. Then he says this, most people we teach will not turn to the Lord. Most people we teach will not turn to the Lord and we are more concerned about their salvation than they are. That's pretty true. Brother Kaufman said this simply means no tears, no converts. Charles Spurgeon said when a man's heart is so stirred that he weeps over the sins of others, then he is useful. Winners for souls are first weepers for souls. As there is no birth without pain, so there is no spiritual harvest without pain and tears. When our hearts are broken with grief at man's sins, we shall break other men's hearts. Tears of earnestness beget tears of repentance. His whole point here is those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Folks, have we ever been moved to the point of tears over the sins of the lost? That's the question he's asking. Does it bother us so much that people are going to an eternal hell that it brings us to cry? That's the point of verse 5. Jesus did that. You know, we get caught up often with, you know, kids in Sunday school. We want them to learn a verse. We want them to memorize a verse. They automatically jump to John 11:35 because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. But you know, that isn't the only time in the scriptures that Jesus shed tears. It's twice. You know what the other one was, right? As he approached the city of Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, he saw the city in their lost state and he wept over it. Jesus wept tears because those people were lost and he knew what was facing them. Effective soul winners are those who are so concerned for the sins of others that it brings them to tears. You know how often Paul was brought to tears over other people's sins? <coughs> Consider with me. He confirmed to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verses 18 and 19, the following. He says, they knew from the first day he came to Asia in what manner he, manner he had always lived among them, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials. He told those elders of the Ephesian congregation, he said, you know how many times I have just cried. That is going to happen if we are so cognizant of the 
destination of eternal souls that are lost all around us. It's going to break our heart. It's going to move us to tears. Not just tears, but many tears. In verse 31 of Acts 20, Paul wrote how for three years he did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. In 2 Corinthians 2.4, we see Paul again explaining his anguish of heart and how he cried many tears out of a love for lost souls. He also said in Philippians 3.18 and 19 that he wept over those who had set their minds on earthly things and would pay the penalty of eternal death for so doing. You ever wonder what made Paul so effective as a soul winner? Two things. Number one, he never forgot where he came from, how lost he was before Christ. Number two, he cried over the lost. Broke his heart. Many times Paul said, I was in tears over these people. wasn't a job to him, it was something that broke his heart. Right here is the secret of the ineffectiveness, James Burton Kaufman wrote, of many Christian people's influence over others. There is simply no tearful earnestness in their desire for other people's salvation. I think it is where we fall short sometimes. And I want you to think about that statement by Brother Kaufman for just a moment, then ask yourself this, are you, <coughs> either literally or figuratively, are you moved to tears over the destination of the lost souls that you deal with every day? Does it bring you to tears? And people don't actually have to see your tears to know that. All they have to do is look at whether or not you're willing to share the gospel with people. I love the second line of verse five, they shall reap in joy. This is the promise of God. The Lord confirmed that in Matthew 5, 4 when he said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. There is no greater joy on this planet than watching a new baby born into Christ. We all love it when a physical baby's born, right? We got one gonna be born here in this congregation before long. My daughter's expecting before long is just something beautiful about a baby being born, just this, this, this beautiful, pure, wonderful, awesome life. Brethren, as joyful as that is, there's something still more powerful and beautiful. And that is when somebody is born again of the water and the spirit in a spiritual birth and becomes a child of the living God. Because that's for eternal life. And they're made just as pure before God. And it is so beautiful. That's what it means they shall reap in joy. If we keep talking to people about Jesus, when we see that first new baby born this year, raise your hand if that's going to fill you with joy. If you didn't raise your hand, why not? That is the most joyful thing there is, verse 5. To see people obey the gospel. Now, I want you to look with me at verse 6. 
Verse 6 says, He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Notice some words there. He who continually. This isn't a person who tries it twice and says, Hey, this didn't work. I ain't doing it again. Continually. Notice that word in verse 6. Okay? He who continually goes, doesn't stop going, doesn't wait for people to walk in the door. Folks, people in this community are not going to all just walk through that door and say, hey, we showed up because we want to be saved. That's not the way it works. What's the first word in gospel? Go. Join all the world. He who, verse 6, Psalm 126, continually goes forth how? Weeping. Brokenhearted over people's lost state. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, we've got the word of God, shall, don't miss this word. I don't care how many times you try to reach out to somebody and have the word, don't miss this word. Look what it says. The one who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. When God says, this will doubtless happen. Do you think it might? God says it's doubtless this is going to happen. If we keep sowing and we keep sowing with tears and we sow the seed of the word of God, it's going to bring results. And we'll come again rejoicing. We sow, we sow continually, we sow knowing. Without doubt, there will be joy at the harvest when the sheaves are brought in. I want to share with you two quick things before we close. That's pretty much the soul winner song there. Something that I've not heard in this congregation, and I'm so grateful, amongst those things I'm grateful for. But I've heard it in previous congregations. And that's this. Well, when it comes to evangelism, well, you know what? We've tried that before and it didn't work. Let's not do it again. We've tried that before. I want to remind us of two passages in the New Testament. One of them is Luke 5. Please turn there. Well, we, we've tried that before, and you know, it, it just didn't work. Now, there are times when programs have to be ended because they truly didn't work, but when that's used as a be-all and catch-all for everything we simply don't want to do because we don't want to do the work, there's a problem there. Luke 5. Look at 1 through 6. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. Luke 5. Now verse 2. He saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Please notice that, as you read through the gospel accounts, the most effective time to go fishing in that time and in that region was nighttime fishing. During the day, these guys were washing their nets a lot. It wasn't productive to go out. Those of you that fish a lot. You know that most of the time, you either fish early morning or up around evening, but right in the heat of the day, it's not real productive, typically speaking. These guys knew what they were doing. They were professional fishermen. They fished mostly at night. Now during the day, they're just washing their nets, getting ready for another night. Verse 3. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down and talked to multitudes in the boat. When he stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for catch. Now, if I'm Simon Peter and I'm a professional fisherman, you got this preacher comes along and tells me how to do my job, I'm going, dude, really? But Peter doesn't do that. 
Simon did answer, saying, Master, we toiled all night. We have been out there all night long working. There's nothing out there. We've tried that. However, at your word, I will let down the net. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish so that their net was breaking. What if Peter had said, Lord, we tried that and it didn't work, but guess what? I ain't going back out there. What would they have thought? Lord said, you can back out. Peter went. Turn to me to John 21. Very similar situation, only later on. After Jesus' resurrection, look what we find. John 21, verse 3. John 21. They're outside, they're going fishing. When things go wrong, they're going fishing. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to them, we're going with you also. They went out immediately, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Notice they're fishing again at night. These are professionals. They knew what they were doing. When the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to the children, have you any food? They answered, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Now, have you ever thought about the irony of that? Think about this. You're on a little boat. I mean, this isn't the Titanic dimensions, okay? It's a little boat, a little fishing boat, okay? What happens when you throw your net on the left side of the boat? Those of you that have ever trolled with a fishing line, you throw way out to the left and you got out there. As the boat continues to troll, what happens to the line? It comes right behind the boat, right? Does it matter if you throw out on the left or the right? No, the line comes back behind you, right? It's just the way things work. So you throw the net off the left side of the boat, what happens to the net? If the net goes down, guess what? The net kind of comes back toward under the boat. What is the difference between that, throwing it out on the right side, and having the net kind of come back under the boat? It comes to the same spot. There's really not a difference. And what did Jesus tell him to do? He said, cast your net on the other side. Really? They're still going to under the boat. And there's nothing here. What if Peter said, forget that, Lord. We tried that. And this isn't going to work. We tried that before. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Verse 7, therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Folks, if they had just said, we've tried that and it didn't work, they would have never recognized the Lord. When God says go, even if we've done it before, we need to go do it again. Psalm 126, Psalm of the Soul Winner. If we've tried unsuccessfully, we need to try again. Thus, as Kidner noted, Psalm 126, speaking first to its own time, still speaks. What does Psalm 126 say to us? God's former blessing are a place of others yet to come. Even a dry stream should be looked upon as a potential river. Diligent work, the good seed of God's word, and tearful earnestness on the part of the sower are the certain pledges of a bountiful harvest when we shall come, bringing in the sheaves. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, you've never obeyed the gospel. We would love to bury you in the waters of baptism and upon your obedience. You'll be able to know that your sins have been forgiven. But if you're somebody here this morning who's already done that, and you just need the prayers to really, really get out there and put Psalm 126 into effect, so that we can enjoy that sure and certain bountiful harvest. If you have any need this morning, would you please come to the front as we stand and sing.